Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're bringing to you two cheeses and a chef's memoir. How there about you go. That? Quite, quite, quite a uh, complicated set of things for the program, right? Well, our first guest, David Gremmels, we've talked to I don't know how many times over how many years. Um, our favorite almost favorite. I mean, I always say, I hate to say my favorite because of other people who are also very good cheeses, including our following guests. But one of our favorite cheeses is Rogue Creamery um, with its outstanding blues. And listen to David tell you the story of the company and bring us up to date on just where Rogue Creamery is right now. We're going to be talking to one of our heroes David Gremmels. Hey, Rogue Creamery. Do I love Rogue Creamery, David? You bet I do. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I thank you for being a fan and lover of our cheeses, Anne and Peter. It's yeah, so but, great to be connected. And it's, it's such a long history. We think it, it started when we started in 2004, our relationship. Yeah, I, I remember that interview. We talked about the world. Uh, Cheese Awards and Rogue bringing home the championship for its uh, famed Rogue River Blue, then just um, and that, that must uh, have blown conceived. you. That must yeah. have blown you away. It did. It did. And still, um, you know, uh, there are uh, uh, waves of of excitement when Rogue River Blue is um, reintroduced on the autumnal equinox each year uh, from, of course, Central Point, where we're located, all the way to London and <laughs> Paris. Yeah. So um, for those who have missed all of our, uh, our interactions, um, c- can you do a really brief rundown on the, the company itself? The, the, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll let you know. And I'll keep it short, so it's... Such right. a dynamic history, as you both know. Yes. So, um, it was founded in 1983, so it's just over 85 years old. Can you believe it? No, so, I'm amazed. Um, and it just continues to evolve. Um, it was founded in Central Point by a cooperative and then acquired by the Vela family, who also owned Vela Cheese in Sonoma, California. And I acquired it on a handshake with Ignacio Vela, known as Ig Vela, <laughs> and uh, he taught me to make cheese. So he worked alongside of me for about a year, and what what a great experience! I learned so much, and and from there on, the creamery just continued to evolve. And in 2012, um, I acquired a dairy as many of the dairies in our landscape have been going out of business or the owners retiring. So I built a state-of-the-art dairy that's organically certified, and it's um, we call it the uh, Rogue Creamery Cow Spa. <laughs> <laughs> we pamper our cows there, and they're creating um, just beautiful, healthy milk. Our breeding is primarily brown Swiss, Holstein mixed bread with Normandy as well. Oh, really? Okay. And and that's in Oregon, David, right? Yeah, that's 
just a stone's throw from Rogue Creamery in Grants Pass, Oregon, along the Rogue River, we're actually bordered by the uh, Rogue River on one side of the property. So lush agricultural land it allows us to practice intensive grazing, and thereby um, we have a, um, about 26 paddocks that we rotate the cows through every other day, and we're really focused on building our topsoil, creating healthy soil, sequestering carbon by doing such, as well as retaining um, the rainwater. And uh, it's, it's just um, really a beautiful dairy, and you just feel it when you walk on the soil in the lush pastures and surrounded by a beautiful herd of cows. And, yeah. and you can you classify it as as farmstead because all the milk that you uh, all the milk that goes into your cheese is raised on your property, right? Well, no. you know no, no, that okay. that's interesting because um, Peter um, in uh, two thousand and eighteen, uh, Road Creamery struck a partnership. I brought in a partner named Savincia Fromage and Dairy, known uh, for their fine cheeses uh, made uh, around the world, and they are an equal uh, contributor to helping us grow our business methodically and sustainably, um, and really helping me um, um, do that, and uh, the great thing is I've been able to build my inventory, and I got my start partnering with a local dairy, and I did the same. I added a second dairy in a partnership with Doug Hale of Hale Dairy in Etna, who practices similarly as we do, of course, organic, but very um, focus on uh, caring and pampering his herd and his pastures, and it's just really um, uh, an exemplary farm. And and he's also a a, a fellow German short hair pointer owner. <laughs> oh yeah, what you you breed, right? I do. I have German short hair pointers, and I've been breeding them for about. Two decades now, so. And you show? Um, do you show? Yeah, um, they do the Navda trials, so um, and that's for their sporting performance out in the field, oh, wow. pointing, tracking, retrieving, and swimming. So, uh, just amazing, amazing dogs in the field uh, for upland uh, bird hunting, as well as in the home as a family dog. I can't say enough about the breed. How many do you have now? <laughs> uh, three. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it seems an odd. They, num- it seems like an odd number. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Peter, I, I hope to get a few more. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, take take us through your portfolio of cheeses. Yeah, Cause, cause yeah. We, we, um, th- we think of you mostly as blue, but I'm sure there's probably more. Yeah, the blue is certainly the foundation of Road Creamery and uh, um, created uh, in 1954 was the classic signature organ blue. Yeah. And it still is the solid 
um, uh, ingredient for many fine restaurants across the country. And uh, it's, a, it's a creamy, sweet, and fruity blue cheese that um, is modeled after uh, Roquefort, but instead of sheep's milk, it's made with cow's milk. And then in 2004, I created the Smoky Blue. Oh, that Smoky was Blue. good, too. Yeah. yeah. I didn't oh, know what to do amazing? about that one. I wasn't sure about that, whether, I mean, until I tasted it. Uh, the idea was funny to me. And yeah. That, yeah, but I liked it. Oh, and then you get those sweet um, notes that actually come through as a result of the smoke that actually dampen the spiciness of the penicillin Roque 40 in the cheese, with, mm-hmm. which creates that blue flavor. Mm-hmm. But then that savory note, and of course we use vegetarian enzymes to coagulate the milk, and so it's this cheese is vegetarian-friendly, and most vegetarians love it because it also has that um, associated flavor of of um, like cured bacon, and so uh-huh. uh, you can make um, an SBLT, a smoky blue lettuce tomato, and it just uh, uh-huh. really reminds you of using bacon, but you're using our cheese. It's, now, what about uh, what about caveman blue? That's that's that's, oh, that's, 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 that's one of my favorites. That's, that's my favorite. Them. I think that's, that's yeah, one for the guys, right? I think it's it's all of our favorites. It's the oldest brand. Um, uh, for our cheeses here at Rogue Creamery, and it harkens back to um, 1933. It was used for a cave-age cheddar, and then I just took that uh, brand and associated it with a naturally rinded uh, cave-age blue that I created, um, and it's just so different from any of our blues in that it has those um, uh, mushroom notes as well as rounded toasted nut flavors as well as a hint of vanilla and a medium spice. It's just such a well-balanced, it's very complex sweet and savory cheese. cheese. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. Complex. a lot of depth. And I recommend eating the rind with that, too. It just adds to the experience. No, it's funny. I, I was I always used to eat the rind on stunt too, but they say yeah. you really you're really not supposed to do that. But I used to do it anyway. Oh yeah, you know you really don't know if you should eat the rind or not in a cheese. Isn't it true? Unless you eat it and you find wow, it's really good. Or yeah, well, maybe I won't do that again. But um, as you, you don't, know, all the you don't do cloth bound and you don't do wax cheeses. <laughs> You're right, Anne. <laughs> but I'm willing to try almost anything else. <laughs> now, let, let me let me ask what might be a really dumb question. But are your cheeses yep, are they pasteurized or are they not pasteurized? Yeah. So, um, Roque does both. We okay. have created both raw milk cheeses and pasteurized versions of our cheeses. So. Um, and so the majority of our cheeses are pasteurized, and we also create raw milk versions for those for the raw milk cheese lovers. Because we 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 read about Stichelton, which is yes, which, yes, which, which is a which is a non, raw milk non pen, yes a raw mm-hmm. raw milk version 
And a, a lot of English cheese aficionados think like I do, that, that it can't possibly be Stilton if it's pasteurized. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, my recipes are identical, and you can't really tell the flavor apart, whether it's pasteurized or raw milk. However, um, there are a number of individuals, and I'm one of them, that uh, simpler the better. The less we do to our food, the better for our health. And so I do also prefer raw milk cheeses. Oh, and good. So, okay. so does our European customers. So oh, we, yeah, we do we do a fair amount of export of our raw milk version. Oh, wonderful. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like the idea of American cheeses going to Europe. I think that's cool. <laughs> Isn't that great? Ah, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> Just we, how far we've come, huh? But, but, the, sto- but oh. the, sto- the story goes that someone, someone asked General de Gaulle, who at the time was the president of France for the third or fourth time. Oh, yeah. What, what, why so difficult governing France? And he's reputed to have replied, how do you manage a country that has 450 kinds of cheese? <laughs> yeah. And the, the, funny, the funny part about it is, I'll, I'll bet there's at least 4,000 cheeses in France. Oh, my gosh. It keeps evolving. Uh, the landscape of cheese worldwide just keeps evolving and growing. It's wonderful. There are so many options and flavors and milk. Uh, yeah, how do you decide, Dave, what to do next? I mean, you're at such a point in, in your business, in your life, in your career that, I mean, you've achieved all kinds of awards and the adulation all around. How do you figure out what direction to go in next? Or you just. Yeah, and, you know, I'll always make room on our wall for another award. <laughs> <laughs> so, um,. I have no issue with that. I'm always excited around competition season, which is upon us. And so, uh, and I'm always thinking about a new recipe. And, you know, it might be uh, inspired by a meal. It might be inspired by a pairing and um, always looking for that layered flavor. So, the, the newest innovation is our Blue Horn, which is a wine-soaked cheese in Frey Family Vineyards, oh, wow. uh, own bridal red wine, and it's just so, so delicious. And creating a, a white varietal uh, version of that as well. And oh, that so, sounds super, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, Did um, you do something with them? Rogue, um, the the uh, beer people, didn't you do it? Yeah, good good memory. Yes, we created a chocolate stout um, shutter and using their uh, imperial chocolate stout and allowing the curd um, to soak up the flavor of oh. that chocolate stout and then um, dipping the curd out of the vat and then putting it into mm. our hoops and pressing it. And so you get a little bit of that marbling effect because of the color of the oh, chocolate. Oh, wow. 
and certainly the malty cocoa flavors come through as well. So was that well received? A lovely cheese. It was very well received and still is one of my number one cheddars to date, followed closely by the rosemary. So we put some rosemary. organic rosemary in that, creating the rosemary, uh, named after Indian Mary Park on the Rogue River. And then the Lottie Doll Lavender is another. Oh, which I love that too. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah, we, we, haven't, we haven't done we haven't done too much with that one yet. Yeah, yeah I've eaten it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't eat all of it. No, I'm no better than that. Had my time. Well, I have to send you some more. It's <laughs> difficult to get our shutters out east, but uh, certainly. You know uh, where to reach me. <laughs> oh, David, indeed. Well, I can't tell you how much fun this is, kind of reconnecting. And and um, it's just, at, uh, I'm just, for lo- such a long time, been just devoted to following your cheese and eating your cheese. And I just wish you continued success and more awards. <laughs> oh, thank you, Anne. But the thing, we're most, the thing we found out that we're most excited about is that you're still out there. <laughs> yes, and evolving and growing and truly a commitment to creating organic cheese that is delicious and healthy and that is making a difference in this world. We are one of the few certified B corporations and certainly ranking the highest in our certification with B Lab. So we have a commitment for having a positive impact environmentally, socially, and economically. So Rogue Creamery is committed to making a difference one wheel at a time. That's yeah, great. Yeah. You, ought to run for, you ought to run for president, don't you think? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Everybody else is. <laughs> everybody, everybody else is doing it. Why not? Why not you? <laughs> we could start the campaign. Grimmels oh, <laughs> for yeah. president. Oh, well, Peter, thank you. I I really love what I do, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Oh, good. So So we don't have to really nominate you. to run for that slate. (laughs) Well, well, again, it was a a delight to to have you back on the program, and don't don't be a stranger. If you've got any any news you want to bring to our audience, be sure to let us know. Yes. Have uh, um, Paula send us an email. I will do that. Great. Oh, and such a delight to reconnect. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, David. And when we get back from the break, we'll be more than half a country away, heading in an easterly direction. Don't, don't go away, because it's another interesting interview about cheese coming up. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, another frequent On The Menu uh, interviewee, and another favorite cheese. This one is Car Valley cheese. And how would you feel if you were the producer of what the International Cheese Awards called the best cheese in America? Well, let's ask Sydney Cook. And, and by the way, let, let's not also forget that they swept the table 
Oh yeah. When, well, when, we're going to run through all when, these when, when it came to blue cheeses. So, so David was relatively new to the cheese business. Sid, Sid Cook is more than a veteran of five five generations in the cheese. And yeah, I don't think David's a newcomer. We've been interviewing him since something like two thousand and five. <laughs> but, 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 but not five generations. No. Sid, okay. Sid's, Sid's got a few generations on him, and a fascinating story to tell. We like to talk to Sid Cook um, when his cheeses, um, the company is Car Valley Cheese, uh, wins awards, which means that we end up talking to him quite a lot, don't we, Sid? <laughs> Tell us about Car Valley Cheese. Where are you located? For, this is for listeners that uh, are just new to this. Well, Car Valley Cheese is located in south-central Wisconsin in the United States. And um, our area of Wisconsin is in the unglaciated area of the state. And so our soils are um, uh, a lot of limestone. We have a lot of diversity in uh, our pastures. And uh, we just have a very... um, beautiful scenic area with rolling hills and woodland and um, many, many natural springs, lots of water, and uh, it's just a very beautiful part of uh, Wisconsin. Now, do you, um, I mean, these, is this farmstead milk or, or um, do you buy it? We buy uh, milk from about uh, 20 uh, cow farmers and that are milking cattle and uh, which are located uh, right around the plant, and we have our own truck that goes around and picks up the milk. We um, also buy from three sheep milk farms, and then we buy from, uh, we have one goat farm that we buy from, and then in addition we buy from uh, cooperatives when we need extra milk. We uh, manufacture in four factories. We make... Um, um, Pre-pressed cheeses at our Mostyn facility, uh, which are all uh, brined cheeses. We make our vat salted cheeses in Laval. We do our bread cheese in our Fenimore plant, and we do all of our blue cheeses in Linden. Wow. Um, now, this, this is a pretty big operation, in other words. Well, we're small relatively to uh, uh, commodity, uh, commodity companies, but we make... Uh, uh, about four and a half million pounds of cheese a year, and all of its specialty and artisan. Well, now you are the fourth generation. Uh, just give us a brief rundown on who started this and, and how it's been held together as a family operation for all these years. Well, I actually uh, um, started the company as it exists today. I uh, My relatives were all cheesemakers. And that's, so that's what makes me fourth generation. My mother's family uh, were all cheesemakers uh, back starting in 1883. And uh, uh, my great uncle, um, Ed Lepley, was a cheesemaker. Uh, my grandparents were cheesemakers. My father was cheesemakers. All my uncles were cheesemakers. Several aunts were cheesemakers. Both my grandparents on my mother's side were cheesemakers as well. And so um, it was just a natural thing for me to yeah. do. I guess I just didn't know any better. I became a cheesemaker, too. 
Now, now, when you all get together, what do you talk about? Yeah, you know, you know what we talk about is cheese. So, yeah, yeah. Well, um, of course, it's it's a natural for Wisconsin, anyhow. Is that the largest cheese-producing state in this country? Uh, yes, it is. Wisconsin is the largest cheese-producing state. We don't have the most milk. Pennsylvania uh, has the most milk. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I, I think it's California, but uh, <laughs> but uh, they have the most milk, but we have the most cheese. You know, they have the population out there where people are drinking the milk. Well, we don't have the population here, so we're making it making it into cheese. Okay, mm-hmm. now how many kinds of cheese do you make? Tell us about that. Well, we make about four and a half million uh, to five million pounds of cheese a year. But you really uh, know for your blues, aren't you? Well, we, um, you know, we make about seven or eight different blue cheeses. And so we make a, a blue cheese, we make a, uh, um, a traditional gorgonzola, we do a, a dolce gorgonzola, we do the um, pentacream, which is similar to a dolce gorgonzola, but uh, I always say it's a dolce gorgonzola on steroids. <laughs> we, add, we add more uh, uh, fat to it. And then um, we uh, uh, make uh, uh, the wildfire blue that has the pepperoncinis in it. We make uh, uh, the smoke glacier blue. We smoke all of the blue cheeses that we make. We do a billy blue, which is a goat milk. We do a baba blue, that is a sheep milk. <laughs> I like that one. Bab-bab we do, blue. yeah, we do uh, a blue cheese um, uh, uh, for another company that. Uh, we put juniper berries in. Oh, great. And, and so, um, you know, we do uh, just sort of, of many, many different kinds of blue cheese, and then uh, many of them we smoke. So we've got eight or nine, ten different uh, blue cheese products that we are presently making. Well, now, uh, the reason we started this conversation uh, today is that at this recent International Cheese Awards um, event, which took place where? Uh, it was in, uh, um, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it was in Great Britain. It's a Natic, Natic, um, cheese conference in the UK. Okay. Well, it's a good place to have a cheese <laughs> fair, I guess. <laughs> and, but, well, well, you know, um, we, uh, uh, love to enter cheeses in international contests. Uh, uh, this is one of the international contests that we do. We do, um, Actually, three others. We do the uh, international contest here in the United States, and we do the Los Angeles International Cheese, uh, cheese and Dairy Competition, and then we do the World Competition, um, which uh, uh, is another contest uh, in in Great Britain as well. Now, um, at, what I started to say is um, this was a really good year for Carvalho Cheese. You took eight awards including the trophy for best U.S. cheese uh, with the Glacier Pentacreme. And then you also swept the whole blue cheese category. Um, describe some of these cheeses that were the winners to us. Well, the the uh, Pentacreme that we won uh, uh, best American cheese with uh, is, uh, like I say, it's, it's uh, Dolce Gorgonzola on steroids. So, 
And we, we like we like it. to have it on um, um, toast, topped with jam. I read. Well, I love it with you with jam with honey. A lot of times, I'll uh, you know I'll have it for breakfast in the morning. I like to toast it. It's a, a very spreadable blue cheese, and I like to put uh, jam on top or honey. Um, I love to eat it that way. It's also wonderful for lunch with chocolate. Uh, it's great <laughs> on a steak. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful blue cheese, and it's not intimidating. It um, it has a, a, a beautiful uh, mushroom finish. Uh, so it isn't a real uh, tart uh, blue cheese. It's. Um, I mean, is it um, the mushroom tasting, or do you actually involve mushrooms? Well, no, there's no mushrooms in okay. it. it. It just has some really nice mushroom notes, and um, so it's very approachable. Uh, you know, some blue cheeses. Um, you know, people will say, uh, "I don't like blue cheese," but um, oh, yeah, this I know. Is, yeah, this is is very tolerable to people that don't like blue cheese. Now, now, your cheese is pasteurized or not pasteurized? Uh, they're pasteurized. Um, we do all pasteurized uh, product. That way we can choose what cultures we want to add, and and we don't have to deal with the seasonality of, of raw milk. And, um, you know, if... Uh, you know, I, I, uh, when you're buying milk from 20, uh, 20 some farms, um, you have a lot of, uh, of changes in the milk seasonally and, and, uh, also just week to week in the weather. Um, you know, if we just had one herd, uh, I could see, uh, doing, uh, raw milk cheese or heat treated. Um, I grew up in a factory where that's all we did was, uh, raw milk cheese, but, um, it's much easier to have a consistent, um, beautiful product and, and be 99% on. And, and then, which, uh, what is your biggest market? Is it America or overseas? America. Uh, we have eight of our own cheese stores that we sell uh, cheese directly to consumers, and which amounts to about 20% of our business. And then we sell all over the United States, uh, and we do some export um uh, to uh, other countries as well, but um, we hope you're not selling any in China. <laughs> yeah, well, they, well, um, you know, there's uh, uh, a big, huge market here for our product, but uh, we sell some cheeses in Australia. I think the um, uh, the Wildfire Blue has been sold in Germany and in France. Um, it's not something that we actively actively pursue because. Um, we have such a large and tap market here in North America. Uh-huh. Now, wh- where c- can people find through a through a like a store locator? Wh- where where well, is they going to be able to find? Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of hard for us to do because we sell about thirty or forty different dis- uh, dis- uh, distributors. Okay, so go ahead. they can order online at carvalleycheese.com. The cheeses are available, and we ship year round. Uh, we um, sell um, distributors all over the United States, but uh, we don't always know what distributors are selling to what um, what stores. Sure, sure, but, sure. But um, you know, they can uh, uh, you know stop by our cheese stores here in Wisconsin. Uh, we have eight eight retail locations here in Wisconsin, and uh, or they can uh, you know order online in the U.S. It's, um, it's almost impossible or impossible for us to ship internationally. 
uh, directly to consumers. Right, but, right. Um, you now, know, that's, uh, is that's this, a tough one. Is this climate change uh, issue, um, I mean, you, you mentioned Europe. I, mean, I can't even imagine uh, what's happening uh, with the uh, produce in, in France, uh, even Germany, uh, with this heat wave. I mean, our friends in Paris said it was 112 degrees in Paris. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I know it's affecting wine. I mean, is it is it going to affect cheese as well? Well, um, you know, uh, we've had a, 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 actually a pretty normal summer here. We've had more rain than uh, we would expect that we would have. But we really haven't had the 100-degree temperatures here uh, that we've had uh, other years. And so, you know, all in all, our temperature was, um, it was pretty normal here in, in, uh, mm-hmm. Wisconsin. And, but we've had a tremendous amount of moisture. So, uh. Well, they say you this know, July was nationally the hardest, the hottest July on record since recorded weather. In, in Europe, yes. I, I, I believe so, yes. So, but, you know, I'm sure the people in Greenland are very happy that, uh, it's well, warming up up there. No, I don't think so. All their ice is melting. All the glaciers are <laughs> melting. Yeah. Let's, let's not open yeah. that. Let's not open that subject up. No, we're going to buy ice. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a good one. Maybe, maybe the president would like to buy Wisconsin. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I've been trying to do that for years and years. But I just, I, you know, I, if I if if I could only print money, I could do it. <laughs> well, oh, well, Sid Cook, many congratulations once again, and uh, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll hear from you next year when you win. Who knows more more or less awards? But we know we know it will be a lot, and we congratulate you. And uh, I'm I'm sure there's another generation right right behind you, making sure that Carvalho cheese is going to go on forever and ever. Well, uh, yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, and and we're very, very proud of our cheesemakers, and uh, you know, very proud of of, of what they've done. Uh, we're um, over 780 national and international awards in the last 12 oh, wow. or 13 years. And, yeah, see, I mean, and we so, say it's good, but we have a lot of you have a lot of awards and show. We're not the only ones. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So. So anyway, but we we were very passionate about our cheeses, and and uh, we uh, really uh, try our hardest to make the best, and and uh, so. But thank you very much for uh, inviting me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, we always love talking to you. You're so good about this, and, and you know we really uh, we we love your insights. You know what you're doing, and give us good feedback on the questions we're asking. So. Yes. Keep up the good work, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you. You have a great afternoon. You too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And we're going to wind this section up, or this segment up with with a book. And people are always saying to me, 
you really should write a book. You've had such an interesting life. Well, let me tell you, uh, talking to this next woman, reading her book called Burn the Place, this chef has the kind of direct, honest look at herself and the world and is reveals all kinds of intimate facts. I, I could just never be that honest. Right. It's, no, doesn't, 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 what she achieved doesn't make you feel like being an author yourself. No, so that's why, in fact, I haven't. Anyway, uh, let's talk to Eliana. Elena Reagan, um, whatever started this memoir, of course you have a lot to write about, uh, and tell us like the title, I don't want to wreck that though, come to think of it, um, but I have to ask you, the title of your book is Burn the Place, and you have to get almost through the book before you understand what you're talking, I and mean, why you named it that. Yeah, and the, the that's Obviously, I, I start out with a very literal interpretation and fantasy of burning the place. But, you know, I think once you read through the book, like you're saying, and you come to the end, you find that it's more metaphorical and that uh, it's where I'm at in life about to, you know, figure out what's next for me and just almost starting anew and and just finding out yeah what's next and kind of burning down everything that is from uh current you know what what's it's led up to and um and moving forward i'm trying a little bit harder to find some balance and and a lifestyle that works because to get that far in in my industry it's, I mean, or just to have a small business in general, it doesn't matter yeah. what industry, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and, and when you throw management and everything else on top of it, it's just, it's nonstop, and, you know, I've just learned over time, it's, you know, that kind of uh, management and capacity for one single person is just far too much. It's now, now hold hold on a second here. Our, li- our listeners are lost already, because I'm lost already as well. Now, what <laughs> what, what what got burned? It wasn't the toast. What? Said it wasn't what the it wasn't the, it wasn't the toast that got burned. It was something else. Yeah, yeah, me. Give, a, give, I, uh... give, a, give us a clue. I mean, Anne knows the Anne knows the answer because she read the book from cover to cover. <laughs> The, mm-hmm. the rest of us aren't so fortunate. Well, think of it metaphorically. I mean, what does burning down a place really represent, Rabbit? <laughs> Getting rid of the old. I, I, I haven't done, I've burned a lot of toast, but I haven't burned any buildings. Uh, how about, no. Uh, and, well, this is leading nowhere. <laughs> Why don't we try a different tack here altogether? Maybe that's because, uh, well, statistically, more women are arson. And men, so maybe it's something we understand more. Maybe. I don't know. You know, I got a, another book at the same time I got yours um, called Burn the Ice, which I understood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyhow, um, yeah, no, th- I know how hard it is. I did that. Uh, uh, owned a restaurant, and it was a nightmare. And you persevered, however, and you have um, you have. W- 
your restaurant Elizabeth, named after your late sister, who you were close to in Chicago, has a Michelin star. And, um, yeah, and, and you have gotten nothing but rave reviews for just about everything that you've done. Um, and what do you, you also have a, a Japanese-influenced restaurant, but you don't write so much about that. I don't know why you had a Japanese-influenced restaurant. Uh, I, I actually love the uh, uh, traditional, uh, like, cultural uh, method of cooking. It's very ingrained. The tradition is very ingrained in, in Japanese culture. And um, a lot of the fermentation and preservation is very... Um, I, I love to learn about that. And so it was just a love for the cuisine that made me decide that I would like to have um, a Japanese-inspired restaurant. So, um, And obviously I took my own Midwestern, put my own Midwestern version into that because that's the ingredients that I'm cooking with. But um, And that philosophy of Japanese cuisine aligns with mine of just using everything that's local. I was in Japan during the winter and... Oh, wow. Um, really, all we could have, uh, are, you know, on most menus from casual restaurants to fancy ones was cabbage and carrots and root vegetables. Yeah. Well, you didn't Rene Recepi do his, um, his pop-up in Japan in the winter as well? Mm-hmm. Didn't he? Yeah. So, and, so, yeah, and it was mm-hmm. a test of your resourcefulness, apparently. Yeah, so... um so it was really uh, just because I love it. I didn't talk so much about it in the book because we just closed the restaurant about a month ago. Oh, okay. And we're in, in the process of selling it. But from the beginning, it was... I could write a whole book on what undercapitalization does to a restaurant. That, you heard. <laughs> you heard. I know about that. I mean, that was the big problem. That and, like, the closing of your bakery is you get the wrong investors and you're, you're shot down right at the start. Yeah, and, and I didn't have the wrong investors. It was just that we ran into so many issues from the beginning with the Chicago bureaucratic system of opening a business and so many, you know, paper shuffles mismanaged um, in different that You're fading, Elena. Yeah, we tried to, for, for 10 full months, we tried to, you know, sat in an empty restaurant um, paying rent. And so, so yeah, that, I mean, that's a story for another time, but I had this feeling throughout, you know, the whole time my, that restaurant was open while I was writing the book, that that restaurant wasn't going to last uh-huh. by the time the book was finished, which was almost, you know, closing it mm-hmm. uh, literally a couple days before the book was published. So, yeah, I, I did touch much on that restaurant. Um, and one, I was, something I was planning on doing next was my restaurant, or uh, my in and bed and breakfast in the Upper Peninsula, um, so this milkweed inn, which you may have heard about, um, but that is, you know, that's kind of my next step, and, yeah. and my next goal is in really working towards changing things up that is just going to burn me out a little bit less, because, um, you know, that's that's what happened. I 
when I first opened Elizabeth, one of my investors said, I'm just worried you're going to burn yourself, <laughs> you know, you're burning yeah. yourself at both ends. And it took uh, seven years to really, you know, opening several other restaurants and closing out and them all being very tiny and me overseeing everything um, from social media to sales taxes to the books to everything. Um you know, eventually it's true. One person can't do everything and and you get burned out and have to figure out what's next because, um, you know, getting stuck under that current is, is deadly as we see in a, a lot of industries and, and particularly the restaurant industry. Um, uh, a lot of chefs do, do not make it because um, it's just so so hard in taxing. Now, you were self-taught, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, and um, you have so many different influences that have come from all over the place. We'll get into it a little bit, but you know, you have so many testimonials or endorsements on your uh, book jacket, uh, and mostly the, the people like Renee, Recepti, Eric Repair, David Chang, um, uh, Jeff Gordner, they they really praised you for being so raw, and mm-hmm. and it is raw. I mean, you had a rural background. Uh, you were out of place. You felt from almost birth uh, that you should have been a boy. Uh, you, you're gay in a. I know what that environment is because I lived there. Um, you're a woman in a men's world. Um, you were an alcoholic. I mean, this is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And to come out of it, I I don't really understand how you managed to even get into, like, you worked at Trio, you worked at Alinea. These were all really top-notch, very uh, progressive, uh, visionary restaurants. How did you do all this? (laughs) I, I, I don't know. I asked. Myself the same question, and recently somebody asked. Well, a couple times that's what if I could go back and say something to my young self, what would that be? And you know, when I reflect on my life, I think, is there anything that that I would want to change? But you know, I'm I'm very as as hard as some things have been. I don't want anything to be different because I'm glad that my life unfolded exactly the way it did. I think about. What would have happened if I would have got sober the first time I went into a program when I was in my late teens, early 20s? How would my life be different than it is today? Because I know it certainly would have. But I feel like everything just lined up to bring me to exactly where I was. And and as you see in the book from reading, you know, exactly from... A very early age, just being exposed to the food and the ways that I, I was, it makes so much sense that I ended up becoming a chef. And yeah, you did have that connection to the land. Uh, you knew foraging. You knew about all these different vegetables and fruits and how they're grown. And you knew all these things that um, some of these chefs in culinary school have to study in in, in a um, class environment, not like feeling it in your bones growing up, an attachment to the earth like you did. 
So I, I started, you know, being self-taught. Honestly, it was already implanted, you know, just being immersed in the environment of cooking from scratch and, and seasonality and all those things that become really important to us as chefs and as, as food consumers um, that, you know, I, I just grew up with. Right. But then, I mean, it, how did you get the nerve to apply for a job at uh, Alinea? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> well, I know Grant Ackes. I know him. And I mean, uh-huh. I... Mm, I, I don't think that I would want to go into a kitchen with the background you had for him. Uh, well, I had worked at, at Trio um, when he right, was just there. starting his career as an executive chef. And um, so I, yeah, I kind of grew up with a little bit with that company. And so... Um, so you, that, you knew Nick too, huh? Kokonis. Um, I don't, I don't know him very well, uh, Nick Kokonis. But who I really had the attachment with was Henry Adenia, who was the owner of Trio, and I feel like I learned a lot from him about restaurants and management, and it, there was a, a lot to be inspired by, uh-huh. and as well as Grant at that time. Um, and so I I liked the setup of of that environment. Well, not so much the setup, but because it is harsh, but um, and masculine and all those things, and like a fraternity. And but what I do like is I, I talked about that quite a few times in the book. The passion and the creativity that was involved in those restaurants was very very inspiring. So. That's something that, you know, you kind of take the bad with the good when you want to be around that because perhaps you need to be inspired yourself. And obviously there's sometimes for some people there's only so much you can take, but that's what I really got from my time working at some of the high-end restaurants that had the very rigorous kitchen and uh, the military-like um, standards and the fraternity-type culture. Uh, was really, um, I was interested in what they were creating and, you know, what well, was the chef's some drive. Of the, some the, of the few dishes that you pointed out, uh, actually even just the discussion of your um, your venture into the bakery, um, I was amazed at some of the creativity that, that bounced out of you. I mean, I was just amazed. <laughs> it's where does well, it come from, you know? Yeah, at the time I was studying um, writing in school, and so I had originally gone to college for chemical engineering, and then somewhere along the line <laughs> took a big change in majors. But um, I was so I was already putting the creative side to my brain to work quite a bit, and I think in the book too, I you know from just describing my childhood and the little meanderings that I had and the things that I did, my imagination was alive and well from the time I was very small. But um, putting that part of my brain to work when I was eight, and then when I began thinking food itself as a chef and things that I was creating that were 
more creative in telling a story um, that was just as fulfilling as the writing uh, to that creative part of my brain. Did you know that um, Gabrielle Hamilton uh, actually has a master's in writing from the University of Michigan? Yeah, I I I read that, um, and obviously makes so much sense because her book is so beautiful. Um, the um, blood, bones, and butter. Is, I mean, I read that um, a couple years ago, maybe. Um, uh, I don't know how long, closer to the time when it came out. But either way, uh, yeah, it was quite amazing book to read. Well, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, that I asked her. Um, uh-huh. and, and I asked her, um, where does it come from that you could be so open and tell so many of these details, not so attractive details of your life and your your uh, spirit? Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question and something that my publisher or my editor commented on quite a bit through my sending him excerpts of the book as I was writing it was like, wow, this this honesty that, you know, and the rawness and the vulnerability is sometimes something we have to, like, really drag out of people. It doesn't come naturally. And the fact that it's coming naturally from you is, is really, you know, a testament to your ability to write. And um, all I know is it was probably practice from me in AA and having to... Be raw and be vulnerable. You know, nothing uh, for me has more leaving me feel raw than walking into an AA meeting for, you know, after a relapse and knowing that I've been defeated once again and everybody in the room knowing how I'm feeling. Like, that's some of the rawest things I've ever felt. So being able to put my story on paper and not thinking about what the judgment is from others because, again, like, I've already had experience with that. So if I'm not thinking about others judging me and I'm not thinking about judging them and I'm just telling my story, it's very easy to be honest about that. Every time I decide to, to write, uh, a friend of mine was a writing coach, and she said, you know, your life has been so interesting because I always wanted to write a novel. She said, um, but since your life is so interesting, maybe you should do it as a memoir. But when I get to that point of having to, to expose myself that fully, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And you come, it's so natural to you, it's amazing. Um, now, I was impressed with the fact that you grew up with the guys from Schwa. <laughs> uh-huh. I can't picture them as, uh, at that age with you. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, that was so, you know, it was so funny because it was like we were just all kids being bad, you know, like all of us. Well, Michael might be a little older but we were just 22, and it's funny to think back to that time when we thought, like, we were kind of adults. And yeah, you were, you were a wild child, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you know, a big part of the restaurant industry that we all still talk about today is everybody being 
a little bit wild, and we definitely were, so. Yeah. Well, now, yeah, of course, everybody's fun. getting straightened out, so I'm glad you got straightened <laughs> out, too. I mean, all these, um, uh, well, the, a lot of people I thought I knew, I, I turns out I didn't know them at all, <laughs> especially the mm-hmm. guys. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, yeah, and, and a lot of the, um, of course, I mean, I think we're shifting from this celebrity chef fixation into an issues uh, a situation. Mm-hmm. You know Kath Kinsman, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. 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 Chef with issues, chefs with issues, yeah. So, I mean, I think we're moving into that kind of vein, in which case your story falls right in line with all this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's definitely issues that were there. So, but... And, and Wait, I can't hear you. Oh, and just still having issues that I'm trying to figure out and work through in real time. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I mean, you've come a long way from a child that was so shy and afraid to talk to, to humans <laughs> that you couldn't even order in, in a restaurant and you hid under the table rather than talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So you've come a long way from that. In, in that sort of development, you found a, a happy partner in your wife. Uh, mm-hmm. You've had success in, in the culinary field, and you're still working on it. Yeah, I think that the well, that's the thing is, you know, we have to keep growing in our industries and in our jobs and our careers and as humans. And I think that that's how I was able to overcome things that I have is, is always thinking, and, and um, maybe that's just something that some of us are born with, or it's something that's natural for humans um, to do, and some of us, you know, are able to find our way out and reflect and really assess, like, okay, what's going on, and that's what I'm always trying to do for myself, is, you know, figure out what What's going on? Am I happy? Do I need to change something? Um, do I need to not change something, but I'm obsessing about it? Um, and, and uh, yeah, that's, I just, as I was writing the book, and over the last couple years, I was writing it over a period of time where I realized what I had been doing was not working for me, and that was something I had to try really hard in the book to convey is as unhappy as I was with my career at the time, but I was so very grateful, and that's something that people notice a lot in the book is that I don't spend a lot of time talking about the last 10 years, because the last 10 years are really hard to assess, like, what is the story and what is the important part, because I'm living in it, and I feel lately so just burdened by the work of a workload of the small business and the unhappiness of, you know, not being, I'm still on the creative end, but just everything sort of weighing me down and uh, thinking about, yeah, what's next? And I think the book really helped me get to that point of realizing something to change for me. And, you know, that's why I. Uh, Taking the, the actions that I am. Okay. Right now, that 
that out of my restaurant for a while. I have something else in charge for this past um, July and August to make dinner to Mosca. And I'm here in the UP at um, my cabin and doing you know, these intimate um, 10 people weekends and uh, cooking for them all weekend and um, basically foraging all week, you know. The thing on my prep list today is I, I have to <laughs> mow the lawn and collect wood and chop wood and change the oil in my generator. And yeah. <laughs> and uh, the big thing it says is pick berries, you know, and go down to the river and go fishing. And, you know, that's part of my prep list for this week, which is to me so much more fulfilling than pay, pay, look. I actually still have to do for Elizabeth, but... Um, you know, pay sales taxes, blah, 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 you know, going into work in that monotonous thing where I go in and um, a million questions come to me about everything under the sun. And mm. Right now I have a chef who is in charge who can answer the staff's questions for me and do that management while I'm away. And, you know, I'll go back to Elizabeth in the fall and finish out the um, fall in the winter and winter and then next May we open out back out here and so be here for six in that case uh, I'm not sure what happened yet but I'm going to use it all yeah you're fading you're fading yeah the sound's going away I don't know what's happening (laughs) Uh, are you breaking up yeah can you hear me now it's it's pretty bad. So uh, uh, let's round this up and and um, and say that whatever your next venture will be, you'll you'll be back in touch and let us know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great, and I'm I'm so happy to see the happy ending, even though you didn't want it to be like a an ordinary uh, memoir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it made me happy to see there was a happy ending. <laughs> so uh, thank you for taking the time, because you are busy, to talk to us. Again, it's called Burn the Place. And uh, you want the listeners to, to get the straightforward, low-down, raw details of a life fully lived, a little on the wild side, but with a great deal of creativity. Um, Elena Reagan, thank you. Thank you. Okay, sweetheart. We made it once again. Right. Same time, same place next week, listeners. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, bye-bye.